If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. And our text this evening is just the 12th verse. Exodus chapter 20, starting there at verse 12. Hear once again the holy word of the holy God. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord, thy God, giveth thee. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord, thy God, giveth thee. I think it's fitting, beloved, as we come now to the second table of the law, It's a division, by the way, um, a division between the first four and the latter six commands that Scripture acknowledges, as we'll see in in Ephesians 6. But as we come to the second table of the law, the second division, I think it's right for us to ask a very basic question, and that is, what, what do we have in front of us? What do we have in front of us? And I suppose that question seems a bit strange, because this text is so very familiar, not only to us, but, but of course, to the world. At least, the second table of the law is well known to many. So what do we have here? Friend, I think the best way for me to begin is is by an illustration. You see, if, if you came to a fire that didn't burn, it looked like a fire, smelled like a fire, but it produced no heat. What would you say of that fire? It's abnormal. What if you, what if you came to a songbird? A, a bird that you would expect to hear beautiful music from. And you found that it was mute. What would you, what would you say of that bird? I'd say again, it's abnormal. When you and I come to the law of God, Friend, you and I come to the definition of human normalcy. That's how you and I are supposed to look look at the law. This This is the creator God coming down to men and telling us what man ought to be. And so that means, friend, that sin, though it's so very common, it's not normal. Sin is prevalent, yes, but it's not normal. Man is strange, jarringly strange, when we look at the law of God this way. When we come to the second table of the law, I think that, friend, becomes all the more poignant, especially in the generation that you and I live. Because the second table of the law shows for us how society ought to function. It shows to us what a normal society should look like. And it doesn't take long, friend, even for a heathen, even for the quote-unquote moral atheist, to make a quick comparison between what he finds here and what he sees in the world and says things are really, really strange. And that's how I want us to look at the law, uh, not only this evening, but as we continue through the second table, as a standard for a normal society, so that when you and I see these things not observed, It jars us as us seeing something that's monstrous. Yes, so very common, 
but something that's truly abnormal. As we come to the fifth commandment, what you have here in the twelfth verse, it is, of course, the beginning of the second table, and there's something of a logic to it, isn't there? Here you have, really, the bedrock for all that's to come. We'll see that in a moment, but I want you to remember that when we came to the first table of the law, we found that as well. We found that there, God was named. The God who who was to be worshipped, adored, whose name was not to be blasphemed, whose Sabbath day was to be kept. But he takes the first command. Well, the first table, the second, sorry, the first command of the second table is no different. It lays the bedrock for all that follows. And so what do we have here? Well, the first thing that we have here is the precept, the command. And that is to honor. To honor. It's interesting, the word in the original here is the same root word from which we get the word glory or glorify. In this particular vowel stem, the PL's vowel stem, it's always restricted to human honor. The idea is that you are going to render or you must render to these ones so described what is their due. That's the idea behind honor. You are giving to another what they are due. What is their right? And we're told here, friend, that you are to, you are to do so to father and mother. Now, obviously, friend, when you and I read this text and whenever you and I um, hear this uh, spoken even by, even by those who are not Christians, the first thing that comes to mind for them and for us is, of course, our, our, our uh, genetic parents, if you like, our biological family. And certainly that's in view. But as you look at the scriptures, as you hold together how the scriptures use these two terms, father and mother, and you see what is annexed to the uses of those terms throughout the scriptures, namely that they all sort of receive honor, you'll find that here, friend, there's much more in view. What do I mean? Well, just direct your attention back to our scripture reading from Isaiah, Isaiah 49. Kings shall be thy nursing fathers, and queens thy nursing mothers. Now, friend, again, this is in a text where where you and I are told very pointedly that that God will make these ones benefit, sorry, those who would benefit the church. And so we're speaking here in in that text of the consolation that they would bring, the nurture that they would provide. But there's really a second element to that, isn't there? Because there, there the church is also being told that those who are lawful magistrates, they are to be seen not only as nurturers, but as nurturers who are like fathers and mothers, and all that that involves. And so, friend, this command would necessarily, would necessarily apply. Also, as you look at the church, the scriptures hold out the same kind of idea. Paul says to the church in Corinth, you have not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel, wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. I want you to notice, he begins by saying, you have fathers, plural. You just don't have many. But then the text goes on to say, really, because I am one of those fathers, Paul says. He says, be followers of me. Again in 1 Timothy. There, speaking to the church at Ephesus, the apostle puts it this way. He says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father. And so, friend, as the scriptures use these terms, and we could go well beyond the text I've just quoted, but as the scriptures use these terms and these ideas of father and mother, 
the scriptures have a wider signification that, that often we, are, we I think we miss. He's saying that those who are possessed of lawful authority in church and in state are to be regarded as fathers, as mothers. But we can go a step further. You see, the principle of the text here is the idea of honoring. That is rendering to everyone that which is due. Well, as we look at the scriptures as a whole, who all does that include? Who all are to be honored? I'll quote to you First Peter just for a moment. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Romans 12. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In honor, preferring one another. And so rightly, beloved, when, when our forebears looked at the fifth commandment, they saw here, really, the foundation of all society. Really, all human relations. That is, our relationship to superiors, to inferiors, and to equals. That, that here the commandment is really prescribing for us normal human society, and that will be the foundation for everything that follows. That's the, that's the logical order uh, that the, the second table takes. This forms the bedrock for all that's to come. A friend, not only is there a command, but there's a promise joined. And that is that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Now, you and I know that the immediate context here is Canaan. Right? That is the land that is promised to Israel in the plains of Sinai and before. But I want you to notice, friend, as the scriptures use similar language and, and offer similar incentives, this heightens really the promise that we find in our text. What do I mean? Just listen to Deuteronomy 16. That which is altogether just shalt thou follow, that thou mayest live and inherit the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And, and you'll find like commands right throughout Deuteronomy. And, and what is the Lord telling Israel? He's saying, I'm going to give to you those stipulations that, that are necessary for you to fulfill. If you are to enjoy the land that has been promised to you in the covenant. And in the second table, he says exactly the same thing. He says, in this second table, reminding Israel, religion consists of both first and second table duties. You want to enjoy the blessings of the covenant. It is not enough, not enough, as it were, to be a first table Christian. If you want to receive covenant blessings, the second table also must be observed. You say, well, that's Canaan. But let me just remind you what the Apostle does with that in Ephesians 6. You remember in Ephesians 6, our scripture reading, the Apostle also includes the promise. He says, the promise is that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Note how the scriptures hold out this command to us. This idea of honoring everyone according to their station and our several relations to them. He says, this is a bedrock, a foundation for you to enjoy the blessings of covenant. I don't know if that strikes you, but friend, it should. It's a striking thing how highly God has placed this command before his people. 
We'll come back to that in just a moment. But, friend, as you look at this text, can I remind you just for a moment that, like all of the law, as we think about this, it's not enough for us to be thinking about externals. It's striking, even though so many hear this fifth commandment in a particular way, namely that God is simply saying for people to obey their parents, that's not what the text says. He says they're to honor them. And friend, that that certainly includes obedience, but it goes well and far beyond it, doesn't it? This idea of honoring certainly touches not only the external behaviors of man, but also his affections. His thoughts as well. And that's how I want us to look at this text. I want us to see here that that we are commanded for God's sake to honor all according to their several stations and relations. And we are supposed to do this recognizing that this is indispensable to society. And it's also indispensable to true religion. And so our theme this evening is just this, that that you are to honor every person according to every or each relation. The command itself is given to us, as I've already said, really straightforward. It is simply to honor. But the essence of the command, as we've already said, really pertains to all spheres, to superiors, to inferiors, and to equals. And I want us to briefly think about how the scriptures really instruct us on how we're supposed to honor each in all of those relations. I want you to see externally, first of all, how the scriptures communicate the necessity and the manner in which this honor is to be paid. If we go back to Ephesians 6, just for a moment, our external obedience to those who are our superiors, those who are lawful superiors in church and in state, those who are superiors in the home and in the workplace, here's what the apostle says. He says, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling. In other words, friend, what the apostle is saying here is that this kind of obedience, this external submission to superiors, is to be done carefully. It's not to be done nominally, only in name. But it's to be done, as it were, meticulously. What about those who are our inferiors? How do we honor them? 1 Timothy 5 puts it this way. He says, If any provide not for his own, and especially for those of his own house, he hath denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. In other words, this man is not thinking like a father. And so he is not rendering to those who are under his charge what is due to them. And in so doing, Paul says, he functions as an infidel. And is to be regarded as such. If he's not thinking like a father and acting like a father. If he's not dutifully providing for those who are under him. And friend, again, we extend this beyond the nuclear home, right? We extend this to those who are called fathers again in church and in state. If they are not providing as they have responsibility to provide. We are supposed to see here that they have undermined true religion. If they're not thinking and acting like fathers. They're acting as infidels. But what of equals? What of this honor that we owe to one another in externals? Paul puts it very simply. He says the members should have the same care one for another. In other words, friend, the church of God is to be characterized 
by this mutual sense of responsibility and outgiving. And so, friend, as you look at this text, we can't get away that, from the idea that there is to be careful obedience to lawful superiors, careful provision for all of our inferiors, and careful service to all of our equals. This the apostle, this the scriptures with one voice prescribe. But we can go a step further. Friend, this not only pertains to what your hands are doing. The scriptures go well beyond that, don't they? They go, well, they go to our lips. Peter puts it this way. He says, there are apostates who despise government. He writes, presumptuous are they, self-willed, not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Well, friend, I think this is perhaps one of the most cutting, cutting of commands for the church. What Peter is saying here is that it's the mark of an apostate for men and for women to be speaking evil of dignities. Whether, again, lawful authorities in any place, but especially in the church. My friend, how often is that done? And done with impunity. Peter here says it's the mark of somebody who is outside of the body of Christ. In fact, to put it positively, Proverbs puts it this way. He that covereth the transgression seeketh love. He that repeateth the matter separateth very friends. And so the larger catechism puts it this way, that to honor our superiors, again, in every sphere, that means bearing with their infirmities and covering their iniquities. They're not saying there that you should never bring out something that must be brought out for the good of the body. But what they are saying very pointedly is our disposition and bent should not be in the habit of these things. We'll come back to that in just a moment. But all of that's grounded not on the externals, but on the internals in man. What do I mean? Well, I want you to notice what Paul says here in Romans 13 with regard to lawful or legitimate magistrates. He says that they are to be subject not only for wrath, but for conscience sake. It says, and so he says, when you come across such a magistrate, as is described in Romans 13... He says, you are to render them obedience, not simply because they can do you some hurt, if you don't. He's saying your inward bent and disposition has to be one of submission. We can go a step further. With regard to equals, the apostle puts it this way. He says, the believer is commanded in lowliness of mind to esteem other better than themselves. Know what he says there. He doesn't say just act like it. He doesn't say just talk like it. He says they are genuinely to esteem. That is, their inward disposition is such that they really regard other better than themselves. We'll come back to that as we close. But the idea there is that their inward thoughts are so turned. And then, friend, not only does it pertain to the thoughts of man, but it, turn, it turns to his inclinations or affections as well. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honor preferring one another. 
You and I, we don't render honor. According to the apostle, you and I do not render honor to our equals as we're commanded here unless we are kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love. In other words, friend, the apostle says you can do any number of physical and good things to your friend, to somebody in the church. But if it's not grounded on this affection, on a genuine brotherly love, you've not fulfilled the command. I think the illustration of this, beloved, is is most poignant in David and in Saul. Saul was a legitimate king. He was lawfully anointed by God. The tribes had already recognized him as king. David had not yet had that recognition in divine providence. And so when Saul comes into the cave, you remember God, as, as David's servant said, God had delivered Saul into David's hand. And, and David didn't kill him, but he did cut off a part of his robe. And then the text says thus, he says, David's heart smote him because he had cut off Saul's skirt. And he said unto his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed. Friend, I want you to notice in this text that here you have the right disposition of somebody under authority. Even when that authority, even when that authority is a man like Saul. His disposition towards Saul, because he is the Lord's anointed, because he's a legitimate magistrate at this time, is such that he is fearful to do anything that would be out of place. There would be unbecoming one who is under or is supposed to be so submitted. So, beloved, you have there a wonderful pattern, not only for those in civil government, but right throughout family, right throughout the church, and of course throughout the commonwealth. This is the kind of disposition that's required of us. But I want us to think about the command as we come to a close this evening just beyond what we've said thus far, not only what it enjoins, but but something of the reason that Scripture gives to it. You see, you and I were commanded here to submit, but it's not unconditional, and it's not for man's sake. We are to submit because it is for God's sake that these things, these orders have been in place. Uh, Peter puts this to us explicitly. He says, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Not for man's sake. Not for for those who are your superior's sake. Not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake you're to do this. And when he is a legitimate magistrate, Paul goes on a step further. And it makes sense for us to do so because he is the minister of God to thee for good. God has ordered society in such a way that that in honoring those whom God has appointed, good will accrue to you. In other words, what the apostle is saying there is, it is always and calculated for the benefit of the church when those who are lawful magistrates are regarded as such and regarded as the minister of God. I want you to notice that this doesn't just apply to magistrates. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men. Uh, Friend, if I can make an analogy 
from here to our employers. Here the apostle says you are to do all of your labor in your place of employment as unto God. I know we say that. I know that has almost become a cliche in Christian circles. But what the apostle is saying is you are to do it as though Christ himself and personally had told you to do that task. If it is lawful, if it is not sin, you are to do it as though Christ had audibly and personally commanded you to do the same. And then, friend, not only is it, well, uh, this is something of a digression, but I want you to notice here, friend, that there is no leveling in church or society. Um, The scriptures here proscribe a certain order, and an order for the good of society, but for the glory of God as well. Uh, We certainly will come back to that when we come to, to the Eighth Commandment as well. But here you have God telling us that his society is to be an ordered one. And in keeping that order, you are honoring God. But I also want you to notice this, with regard to equals, Christ puts it to us this way, and, and this, should, this should send chills down our spines. In Matthew 25, you remember when Christ paints that picture of the judgment, and he brings the faithful before him, after he's already exposed the hypocrite, he says this to them, As ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. And so, beloved, what Christ is saying there is as, as those menial services are rendered to your equals in the church, he says, you are to think of that as done personally to me. Because that's how Christ regards it. When you're visiting the widow, the orphan, when you are extending those necessary needs mercies to others. The word of God says you are to do so as though you were doing it unto Christ himself. And friend, that's how the believer's practical love is shown. That is the bedrock and root of it. I I think this is perhaps something that we we have missed in large part. You know, folks, folks complain about the church and they complain about life in the church. And, And they end up leaving churches Because they say, well, I just didn't really feel the love. But friend, if we apply what we've just said here from the fifth commandment to the church, particularly in this case, why should we love and serve the church? Why should we love and serve another member of the body of Christ? Friend, we're to do it for God's sake. Bernard of Clairvaux, he put it this way, There are really four stages, four stages of love in the life of a believer. Before he's a believer, he loves man for his own sake. In other words, he loves men who will do him good. And so he really loves his friend's love, right? He says the second level is a bit different. He, this man then begins to think about God. And he says, so, so man loves God for man's sake. So he begins to love God because he thinks God will do him good. In other words, he loves the gifts of God. Those are two stages before conversion. But after conversion, things change. At conversion, the man begins to love God for God's sake. That is, he sees the excellency, he sees the loveliness of God, 
And so he loves God. In other words, he loves God more than God's gifts. But the mark of Christian maturity is the fourth step. Whenever man begins to love man for God's sake. Not for what other men will do for them. But they love men because God has told them to, first of all, and especially in the church, they love their fellow member for Christ's sake. No matter how difficult they might be. Friend, if we observe that, I, I, think, I think we'll find church life to be quite different. But as we close, friend, what are the examples in Scripture, both positive and negative to what we've said so far? Let me give you the negative example first of all. The negative example of this is Eli and his sons. You remember God comes to Eli, a father, and he says, Thou honorest thy sons above me. Thou honorest thy sons above me. In other words, You have functioned as a father. You've provided for them their health and their wealth, their education, and now their place. You've done the work of a father with regard to those things. But you've done the work of a father without regard to me. And beloved, I think think it's important for us to remember that. This commandment does require us to fulfill our duties as fathers, as leaders in work and in church, as fathers, but we're always to do so first with an eye to God. As soon as a congregation, as soon as a family becomes, in terms of duty, more important than the command and ruling of God, a friend, you'll find that this rebuke certainly applies as well. You've honored them above me. But what of the positive example? What of the positive example of the fulfillment of this. And friend, the perfect example, of course, is Christ. And I suppose we could go to all of those places where Christ speaks of his readiness to do his Father's will, but but we can go so much further than that. And the analogy can become, well, far more close to home. In Luke 2.51, we're told this, that Christ went down with them, that's Mary and Joseph, and came to Nazareth. And was subject unto them. Oh friend, I, I think we read over those words too quickly. But do you realize what the gospel writers are saying? Christ made himself subject to parents who were inferior to him. Both in grace and in prerogative. And he did so, yes, as in his estate of humiliation. He did so. Yes, so as to fulfill all righteousness as one born under the law and made of a woman. But I want you to hear, I want you to see this. He is our pattern. And so, friend, we can't say, we can't say that this command prescribes for us to, to simply discount those whom God has put in over us simply because they're fallible. If their commands are lawful, if they're not disobedient to God, well, friend, the example that Christ himself gives is one of subjection. That's, that is, beloved, the, the picture of Christ's likeness with regard to this command. 
There is to be a disposition of submission to lawful authority. And Christ himself demonstrates that. But I want you to notice too, beloved, as we close, if I can speak particularly to fathers and to those in place of authority in the church and at home and in the place of employment. Friend, a wonderful example of a father fulfilling what he's obliged obliged to fulfill with regard to inferiors is Abraham. The Lord says of him, I know him that he will command his children and his household after him and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. In other words, what the Lord says of Abraham is not that he will provide just for the natural or or temporal well-being of those under his charge, but that principally, principally, Abraham's chiefest grace in his position is that he will first of all take care of the souls under his charge as souls. You see this in Job. Job, who didn't even see any sin in his children, he simply sacrificed because of the suspicion, the thought of sin. It shows us that he had godly children. But he sacrificed for them, prayed for them nonetheless. That's an example of this very thing, where those who are superiors are most concerned about the souls of those under their charge. And friend, how many will there be on the day of judgment? Children who cast off all of the wealth and all of the education that their, that their parents have heaped upon them and will say to their parents, why did you not care more for my soul? Friend, that, that's not an exaggeration, that's not hyperbole, and that's not fear-mongering. That really is to be the principal concern of those who are fathers. That is the duty that they're owed to those under them. There's so much more that we could say and that we need to say. Um, But for the sake of time, allow me to close with this. You and I, we, we live in a society and we've lived in a society where these things are just not taught. I mean, you want to hear backbiting. Typically, friend, you can hear backbiting most among those who are professing Christians. You want to hear about those who are speaking negatively and have a disposition to speak negatively about those in authority. Often you can hear that at a fellowship. If you want to talk about about begrudging a brother from the heart, even though maybe with your hands you're doing some good to them, but casting about their sins to others, being willing to speak negatively, too willing to speak negatively. You'll find that in the church. And so, friend, this command strikes very much at home for all of us. And so how is society going to come to normalcy? Unless those who are redeemed of the Lord are studying these things and by God's grace putting them into practice. Beloved, the church is to be a picture for the world of what normal society is to be. That is, that is our calling. It's our calling to show here, among us, that genuinely, genuinely Christ is making all things new. 
And this commandment certainly is to be observed for his sake, that that testimony might go forth. May that, may that be us. May it be that this is our great desire as we seek to be a faithful witness in these declining days. Amen.